you got to have a transition. You got to sell your business to someone, sell it inside the family, sell it outside the family. I don't care, but always sell your business. That's, you know, your last deal is your hardest deal, but it must be done. That's the greatest gift you can give your family is that, that clarity and that simplicity. But then I really did have to answer the question, how do families talk about the division of wealth? When do you leave wealth to your children? How much is enough? How much is too much? Welcome to Life After Business, the podcast where your host, Ryan Tansom, brings you all the information you need to exit your company and explore what life can be like on the other side. Welcome back to the Life After Business podcast. This is episode 121. And if you have been following our episodes and this show for a while, you've started to probably realize and get some exposure to the GEXP Collaborative Five Principles in the Process. And we're going to start talking about a little bit more as we're actually ramping up for our book launch uh, mid next year. And we've got some other cool events that are coming down. But I really want to start giving the framework that how the, these episodes fit into the five principles in the process. So all you listeners that are not aware of the principles, the first one is what is your vision for the business? business. Second one is what are all your financial targets? What are the light? What's the lifetime income that you need? What is your valuation of the business? And how does that valuation fit into your financial net worth and your needs of the liquidity? The third principle is what are all your exit options that are available to you in order to meet all those needs? And then the fourth one is how to maximize the value of your company in light of your exit options and financial targets and goals. And then the fifth one is how do you hire the team of advisors to help accomplish the goals and the plans that you put into place. And today's guest is a very, very interesting one and in how it relates to our five principles. Tom Deans wrote a book called Every Family's Business and he has sold over a million copies of this in the last decade since he and his family sold their third family business, each generation sold the business, the first generation founders sold it. So they've never actually transferred a business. And his argument is that every family business should be sold, which is interesting because family transitions are one of the exit options that might accomplish your goals. So we have this great dialogue about when and how a family business should be sold for what type of value, how does that intertwine to the gifting in the estate and from the different siblings in the family. And the you know, the big thing that I think needs to be taken away from this episode is that if you understand that if you're the co-founder or the founder and you understand what's important to you and you have a clear vision of your legacy, your vision and how you're going to quantify that, then you understand your financial targets of when and how your money comes into your estate. Is it tied up into your business? Is it tied up into outside assets? And how does that roll to your families? Understanding then what makes sense? Should you sell the business to the kids? How do you actually determine what that value is? And Tom has a really good argument that every single family business should sell for market rates, whether it's internal, external, third party, ESOP, it doesn't matter. It should be sold for market rates. And he describes why that's even important in light of the tax consequences. Really, really good arguments, very, very strong opinions, and I think he's got a lot of validity to the things that he's been saying. So I really believe that this is a must listen, and if you're a family business or if you touch a family business anywhere, whether you're an employee, a third party, a family member, a spouse, anywhere in and around the family business, this is a good episode to listen to so you can start asking really important questions to everybody that has a stake in the outcome of what that family business is and where it will eventually transition to. So if you have more thoughts, more questions, go to the GEXP Collaborative's website where we have two ultimate guides on all of your internal exit options, the pros and cons, your external exit options, pros and cons, and a very, very deep, intense guide about all the different ways to value a business and how to determine whether you need that money and when and how you can get that. So if you are in a family business and have questions around that, go there, get more information. Otherwise, go get Tom's book. It's a fantastic and short read. But other than that, I will leave you to the episode with Tom. So without further ado, here's my episode with Tom Deans. This episode of Life After Business is sponsored by GEXP Collaborative. Their proven process gives you clarity on all of your exit options and how those options impact your financial success, timing, and future happiness. Sell your company on your time frame to the buyer of your choice at the price you want. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Morning, Ryan. Fantastic. Thanks for having me on. 
So this is going to be fun because we have lots of uh, family and businesses to talk about today. <laughs> and I think uh, with your crazy amount of exposure and experience into this field and my personal expo- uh, experience and my other clients that we talked with and through, I think, I think this is going to be a fun episode for the listeners. But um, for some of the listeners who might not be familiar with you, your book, your background, why don't you just kind of give us the, the expedited version of where you came from, how you got to where you are, and then why, why you ended up writing the book. Well, okay, so uh, I'm going to forewarn you, cut me off, because as you <laughs> said, everyone who has worked in a family business has got a very long story, but I'm going to try to keep it real short. <laughs> I, uh, I joined our family business. We were in plastics manufacturing. I joined that after a career in banking at the tender age of 37, which, as you know, is quite late in the world of family businesses. Mm-hmm. Ran that business for eight years as CEO and then sold. We had an unsolicited offer from a competitor. So we sold to a strategic buyer and we closed that deal on February 8th, 2007, Plastics Manufacturing, 2007. We got out just before our industry melted down. And I got to tell you, Ryan, we're not that smart. We were incredibly lucky to have found our exit at the time that we did. Mm. I, uh, I worked for the new owners for about six months. I Ooh. like to say I served a six-month sentence for a crime I didn't commit. It was a, <laughs> it was a brutal, brutal, brutal um, period of my life, as anyone who has run a business and then has to stay and watch someone else run your business knows. Uh, and then um, they asked me to go home because I can tell you family business owners make terrible employees. We just don't <laughs> take direction. So they asked me to go home. I did. And I took two weeks off. I, I played golf every day, didn't move my handicap a single stroke <laughs> and found myself uh, typing away at my computer. And that was about 730 in the morning, around 11 o'clock in the morning, my wife popped her head into my, into my office. And she said, what are you doing? I said, I, I think I'm writing a book. <laughs> And I typed all day and all night. I stopped typing that day at about three in the morning and I typed 10,000 words of what became a 43,000 word book. Most of those first 10,000 words made the editorial cut. And uh, 30 days later, I had had a first draft of what uh, is now Every Family's Business, which was listed by the New York Times as the top 10 uh, books for business owners to read. It is just a phenomenal little book that carries with it a profoundly different message for business owners. And I think it's because of that controversial message, that contrarian message that really propelled the book uh, to uh, sell, as I said, just over a million copies. Uh, so it's, it's been an incredible journey. I, uh, that, that book actually turned me into a professional speaker, not the other way around. It just kind of took me all around the globe. I've spoken in 25 countries, um, over a thousand paid speeches. I do large conventions. It's just been the most incredible journey sharing this incredible perspective, which by the way, a lot of people disagree with, and I'm completely okay with that. So that's, uh, that's who Tom Deans is. That's how he came to write a book and then follow that up with a sequel. We'll talk about that later, but that's, uh, that's who I am and that's what I do. Well, and yeah, like there's not just a shortage of things to talk about here. <laughs> so I, uh, I, so first of all, let's just start with why, you know, for the people who haven't listened or read the book, why is it contrarian and why is it, you know, against the grain from the normal, you know, cause we've, we can dive in and unpack the 12 questions and actually the, the, the part of the book, because I think that probably is a lot of where you, that your learnings came from too. Cause I want to also hear, you know, how that, how that actually was applied and you experienced it in your, in your journey, but why is it against the grain? Like what, what's the premise there? Well, you know, anyone who writes a book is trying to convince themselves of an idea. They're not really trying to convince their readers of an idea, but themselves. I mean, so there's good books have internal conflict in them, as do I. As much as the book is quite deliberate and definitive in its perspective, you can feel the confusion and the tension in my own logic uh, on the pages of the book. Uh, as I'm driving out of our driveway on the very last day, so we've sold the business, I've worked there for six months, they've asked me to go home, I'm driving out and I go, in my mind, I'm looking in the rear view mirror, looking at the building, and I go, this is unbelievable. This is, the, this is the third time we've done this as a family business. We have never transitioned the business into the next generation's hands. My great-grandfather, who was entire distribution business, my, uh, 
my grandfather had a chemical manufacturing business. My father had the plastics business. That's the business that I ran and helped sell. So there it was again, like start it, run it, sell it. We've never gifted our businesses to our kids. And it, like if our kids want the, our businesses, they need to go to a bank and borrow money and buy it. And I was actually in the process of doing that. And I'll talk about that later. But I thought, isn't that interesting? So I thought, I think, I gotta, I think at some point I got to write that story. Because all of the family business books that I read carried the same old narrative. Founder starts a business, invites their kids in. They read these books. The books say have lots of family meetings, lots of communication. Get <laughs> the business into the hands of the kids. The kids will love you. You will love your kids. You'll make lots of money. It'll be fantastic, and everyone will remember you as the great founder of the great family business. And the older your business is, the more successful your family will be, and built to last. And old is good. <laughs> and I'm like, well, I guess we're, I guess we're a loser family because we never, ever get those businesses transitioned. And, and I got to tell you, we didn't feel like a loser. We sold that business, 10 multiple EBITDA, all cash, like it, no earn out. It was an amazing deal. Mm -hmm. I thought, you know what? I gotta, I gotta write this book. I, I gotta write this book. I gotta offer business owners a different narrative, a different set of goals. And I gotta tell you, the day that we sold our business to this day was the best day of my life. It was an incredible moment watching someone slide a check across a table and pay you not just for, I don't know, your sales, but for your brand, your technology, the goodwill, the innovation. All of that was reflected in the price that we were able to get for our business. And I thought that's, that's got to be a goal for more, for more people. So that's, uh, that was the genesis of the book. That was the impetus for writing it. And, and quite frankly, it's the best thing. I think the, the most successful thing and certainly the most satisfying thing that I've ever done. So why do people disagree with that, uh, that strategy then? What, like, what are the, what's the main objectives that you hear from the family and the business industry? Well, I, I can tell you right now, I have two horrific groups of people that I speak to when I, in my professional <laughs> I have I have software developers who, when I'm speaking at their conferences, they're flicking their pens and twirling their hair, and they're like, is this guy done? Of course we're <laughs> going to sell our business. Duh. Like, they've got four more businesses that they want to start, ramp up, and sell, right? So they're a tough audience because they're like, are you done? I totally right, got, got it. I totally got it. Like it's, done in, it's done in a minute. I got it. Then at the other end of the continuum are, are farmers where their business has been gifted to them. Their land, their business is under their nails. The dirt under their nails represents their hard work, their legacy. Their, they work on the land that they live on. It's all mixed up. It's so emotional. And they hear my message as do many business owners in different industries. And they go, why would I ever sell this business? It was given to me by my father and by his father. This is who we are. Even the unborn will be farming <laughs> in our family. And, it's, and, I, and they, just, they just bristle at the suggestion that every business needs to be sold. Their, their identity is so wrapped up in the business, the emotional connection to the land, or to the business, or to their people, or to their community. It's so ingrained that they just, the sale represents a public acknowledgement of failure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because they're, they believe that the sale represents a broken family, a broken business. Because we all know, Ryan, that you'll only sell broken businesses, right? right. If you ever sell a business that's in the middle of a hockey stick, right? You know, that big ramp up in sales, growth, peaking. You, you wouldn't want to sell a business then. So, and I was watching some of your videos online too, and you, you've, you've got such a strong opinion about this, and, I, and we're going to unpack this too. But is, you, I think you even said that there's a lot of narcissism that, that is in there. And what is the reasoning by saying that? And what are, what are the huge challenges that like, I mean, you, you mentioned it, but it's, it's all intertwined, but like, why do you think it is the way it is? Well, I think the founders are, are the biggest problem. The founders who have spent more time on their business, literally more hours on their business than they have their family. Mm -hmm. 
it, it's self-rationalizing to imagine that their greatest work of art, their greatest legacy, the thing that they'll be remembered for the most is, is their business. It's their greatest triumph. And so what do they do? They offer inflated salaries or free shares or discounted shares, and they lure their children onto the farm, into the business, into the manufacturing operations, a retail store, whatever it is. They lure them in with this idea that the business owner, the founder will retire Let's call it semi-retirement because you and I both know they never leave the building, <laughs> right. ever, ever. They may go to Florida, play some golf, but they always come back. And they always come back with their opinions and their assessments of how the next generation <laughs> is. And where's the family money? Where's the dude's dough? The founder's money is wrapped up in a liquid stock in, their, in the retained earnings of that operating business. That's why they never leave the building. Mm -hmm. and, and of course, it, the, the idea is that they're going to pull a salary in retirement while their kids run the business. Like that's the plan. And yeah, then they're going to yeah. die and then the shares will go to mom. Then mom's going to have a heart attack because she's running a business she doesn't love or understand. And yeah. she probably despises it because of her, all the lost time for her husband for decades. All right. I, I got to tell you right now, I get more phone calls from elderly women whose business owner husbands have predeceased them. And you know what they tell me? What's that? They want to bring their husband back from the dead and kill them themselves. <laughs> it's insane. They don't want the business. The business starts to spiral out of control. Competitors pick it off for pennies on the dollar. It's the same old movie playing in local theaters right across the country. And you're going to see it over and over and over. This is a real problem. Business succession planning, exit planning is a big problem now because primarily because business owners are living vastly longer. Mm -hmm. So that scenario I just painted where the business owner semi-retires, like they would die. They would die at 72. They'd have a heart attack, right? Now the, that business owner semi-retiring at 67, 68 on average, they're having heart attacks at 72. Now they're getting a stent and running four marathons. These guys are dying in their 80s and 90s, and their kids are in their 60s and 70s mm. looking for permission to retire, never mind buy the business. Just <laughs> like it's, not, it's not working. And the kids are getting fed up building businesses, building value in businesses that they don't own. Right. And then, the, and like, it, it, I hear it so often, Tom is like, like, in I mean, I got multiple friends who own family or like are work and they're in this trap where they're just going to grind away. And they say, well, we're just not going to rock the boat. And we're just, I'm like, you're going to have to buy your own value back at some point, you guys, like, it just makes no sense to me. <laughs> like, Absolutely. So Absolutely. yeah, they're actually working against their own interests. Right, right. Yeah. Like, so you're going to double the size of the company and then you're going to have to pay twice as much. So that makes no sense. <laughs> so, so when the kids complain about that scenario and the parents go, uh, you know what? Zip it. Relax. Don't worry. One day, all of this finishes will be yours. You got it. <laughs> you have to promise that don't worry about the price that you have to pay. We just got to, you just got to hang in here long enough until we die death becomes a triggering event for the intergenerational transition of a family business. And it's not happening. It's mm. happening way too late. So then what, what is, um, you know, what, it, maybe we can kind of go into like, what is the, well, actually, before we didn't do that, I'm curious, Tom. So was it your, I mean, you came from the banking side at 37. So you came into your business at a significantly different kind of place. than I would say probably most family members come into it. So where did your mentality come from and how did you guys get to that point where you said it's the best day of your life and it still was, it is. So how did, how did you get there? Well, I think it, it, it came as a result of our really odd family culture. I was actually buying shares in that business seven years before I joined as an employee. Mm. And I would go to the bank and I would borrow money and I would buy shares. And the share price was going up every year because the company was, was, was doing very well. And I bought shares, you know, five consecutive years. After doing that, my father put me on the board of directors. And then two years later, he hires me as CEO. So think about it, right? I'm a shareholder first, a director second, an employee third. We do it all backwards. Yeah, that was exactly backwards. <laughs> we do it all backwards. So this idea, so when I'm stepping into that business the day one as CEO, I'm not thinking, oh, this is the Tom Dean's legacy show. All I got to do is kind of mail it in, be a little bit overpaid, underwork, maybe do this for 10, 15 years till our kids are old enough. We can foist it on, onto them. 
that is that is not our family culture. It is all about being very mindful of the value we're creating inside that business and how it's going to be monetized. It's going to be it's going to be monetized by someone buying it, family members buying it, employees buying it, strategic buyers buying it, someone buying it. We're not gifting it. And I know that, like I know that walking in at 37 in 1999, that's my business to continue to buy at market value or that's my business. And here's the catch. It's my business and I can help sell and I can make money in our family doing it either way. Mm -hmm. So what often happens in family businesses is they they forget the second piece. They forget to, to have compensation models in place for family members that aligns their economic interest. So often in family businesses, if they get sold, mom and dad get rich and junior loses her job. Hmm, I don't know what that's like. <laughs> right? <laughs> right. So well, that's, why, that's why many of the family businesses don't get sold. I, I gave a speech to, um, at an M&A conference this summer. I'm like, Man, you guys, you have to understand you're working, you're talking to all these owners. The vast majority of these businesses will never, ever be sold. They'll never come to market because you are just missing the forest for the trees. These families need to have these conversations Mm -hmm. about the dangers of gifting shares. So it's just a very different model. In our family, I was very keen to continue to risk capital by the business. And then a whole bunch of things shifted and you could see that the real opportunity to make money came from being not a buyer, but a seller of the stock. And so that I pivoted in 2002 and it still took us five years to ready that business for sale and extract the value that we wanted to. Five years to sell a business that was, oh my gosh, wildly successful. So, and we're, I want to dive into that and uh, let's plan, I want to plan a C because I want to come back to the compensation structure and maybe, you know, maybe we can do that before we go into uh, the questions, because I think the separating of own, uh, of ownership and of salaries and the estate, all of that is so important and no one does it correctly. So I want to make sure that we, that we dive into that, but maybe, I don't know if you want to give a quick little rundown of the 12 questions and like, you know, kind of the premise of the book and, or maybe we do the compensation stuff first. I'm just kind of, uh, whatever you think is the natural. Let me, make a, let me make a general comment about the questions we don't have enough time to go into all 12, yep, yep. but I can tell you that the book has alarmingly few answers for business owners. <laughs> <laughs> there are a lot of books that offer up answers and I don't know how they do that. Seriously. I mean, every family, and you know what I'm talking about, your family was different than mine. Your business is different than mine. And yet we're trying to come up with this cookie cutter approach to business succession planning for families. It doesn't work. Right. Uh, a lot of business owners will turn to their accountants and their lawyers their two most trusted advisors for help on this subject. And of course you and I both know in retrospect, looking back on our own deals, <laughs> What happens if you're the accountant and you're the lawyer and the business gets sold? Yeah, right. How the accountant lawyer loses the file? So we're, we have business owners in record numbers turning to those professionals and getting really biased advice. I'm, By the way, I barely know what it's like to actually be in the thick of it. I mean, that, they, they provide lots of good advice, but there's a, I mean, it, you, it, it's so difficult to unwind the fact that like you go into the office and you, as I, like, I was talking to this other second generation and like, you literally feel trapped because you can't go like, so think of it and I'm kind of going on a rabbit trail here, but it's like, so if I go walk in and I don't like my current situation, I don't have clarity of where I'm trying to go and how I get compensated for this, but I can't like just throw my resume online because everybody will see it. I'll get ridiculed for it. So you're literally just trapped. <laughs> so like, and, and that's a way, you know, to have an accountant or uh, a state attorney, you know, you know, putting things in trusts and this and that. And it's like, well, that's not solving the problem, guys. Like, it's like the emotional tension is so high. It just, I mean, it's so difficult to get true empathy, I guess, from, from a lot of the advisors. Uh, absolutely. And often the, the professionals are looking at the earnings and they're going, well, why would you sell this business? Look, you're never going to get this return from your you know, 401k or you're never going to get this from your mutual fund. Why would you sell this? This has been the best investment of your life. Now, they don't, what they don't, they're not risking their capital. They don't know that you know, the business owner has 80% of their personal net worth wrapped up in one illiquid stock. Like they don't know that. They just mm-hmm. look at the returns mm-hmm. on invested capital. Or 
they don't really understand that the next generation, if the business fails, who is going to hire? Who is going to hire me? Who is going to hire me as a, as a president of a family business in the marketplace when they know that I got the job because I shared the surname of the founder? Right? We lack credibility in the marketplace because, because of who we are. We could be the most awesome CEO in the world. We are unemployable. <laughs> or our value is diminished because of our, because of our DNA. It's, it's so unfair. So often family businesses get started. Business owners feel like they painted themselves into a corner because they've got their children in the business. They don't know how to sell a business where their family is deriving a lifestyle and income from that. And children are trapped because they don't really feel like they, they can leave. I mean, there's a lot of kids that don't want to leave family businesses because they're afraid of being disinherited. Mm-hmm. Being removed from a will, leaving their parents high and dry. Mm-hmm. So, so, how you know when you say that there's not a there's not a lot of answers in your book. So then, what was the what was your main goal with the book, and how are you addressing this problem? So I address I, the book. The book doesn't have answers, but it has twelve really fantastic questions that will start just the most extraordinary conversations inside the family. The the questions really are designed to be asked and answered between a parent and, uh, and, the, and the next gen or a key employee. So the 12 questions work with both, mm-hmm. with both groups. But the questions do, do presume that someone has control. So some of the questions go to the controlling shareholder and some of the questions go to the, to the family member. And these questions can, can and should be asked to people who are inside the business or outside the business. It really is about bringing clarity and transparency to the family about how their largest asset will transition. And, and as I talk about in the book, if there is no what I call buyer in the house, if there's no key employee or family member who wants to risk their capital to buy your business, I'm like, dude, you, that's strike two. You're left with you know, financial buyers, private equity, mm-hmm. or strategic buyers. No one's inventing new ways to get your money out of your business. You, you have to accelerate those and, and make your business sellable and prepare it for sale because you have no one inside your family, inside your building, who loves your business enough to risk anything. So you better get moving. And there's a generation of business owners who I'll tell you right now, they're gonna leave so much money on the table because they just, I don't know what they think. I think they think that someone's gonna you know, they're going to meet someone at their industry convention who's got a, <laughs> write them a big check and they're going to negotiate some quick deal at the Holiday Inn. And it's going to go down in like a month. It just doesn't, it, that's just fantasy. It's not going to happen. So then, yeah, no, trust, we, we tell in, in our keynote, we talk about like the, the trade show, the random unsolicited offer. And, oh my God, someone's going to give me money. Like, let's do this before everybody, before no one forgets. <laughs> but, um, two different situations. One is when are times when you would recommend an intergenerational transfer versus the third party? That is a really, really good question. I I, I think there's a real tension between getting the best price and preserving that thing that we call family legacy. And I think the thing that I'm most proud about in the book, Every Family's Business, is this idea that uh, there is no business that offers itself as a legacy. Often when I'm doing keynotes, I can have an audience with a thousand people and I can ask a rhetorical question like, who is the founder of Coca-Cola? And it's crickets. <laughs> a thousand people in a room, no one knows. Arguably the most valuable consumer brand in the world, or it was up until a couple of years before Apple. It's a massive company with massive value and no one knows who the founder is. And then I kind of, you know, look to the room that I'm talking to, whether it's auto dealers or funeral home directors or whatever, franchise association. And I say, who is really going to remember you for your, for your business? The answer is no one. Mm-hmm. That's a hard message to deliver to founders who are rightfully proud of the businesses they've created, but they are misdirected by this idea of what their legacy is. So if their business is not their legacy, it does beg the question, what is? And in my estimation, it's family. It's, it's not the business. It's your family that is going to remember you. It's the family that is going to be providing late in life care for you as you age and, you know, you are, are really out of control. 
Mm-hmm. It's the family that's going to step up. And if you've used your business in a really unhealthy way to control relationships and control right. family, you are going to be sorely disappointed and awfully surprised about how there is a lack of care for you when you need it the most. I think that was extremely well said and extremely clear because so many times I see founders use it, like you said, to control. I mean, that's really what it is, is it's a way of inflating prices. You can't get this much out on, you know, you know, out on the market. You can't, you know, you're not going to get your inheritance. It's all of those things that are just hanging over. And, you know, when you lose control, you're going to see who doesn't show up to help (laughs) because it's finally, it's, it's time to pay the, pay the piper for all the stuff that you pulled. Very much so. And you can see how the subject is so confusing for business owners because they learn at a very early age that the, the, the secret ingredient for making money is exercising control. And like in business, you either have 51% or more, or you don't. You, it, it is just all about control. And so then the subject of business succession planning comes up and all of a sudden it pivots and it's all about relinquishing control. Like, how do you do something that is so counterintuitive, that has served you so well? How do you all of a sudden be sold on the idea that the best succession plans are the ones where business owners approach the subject from a real place of wisdom and gratitude, and they start to ease up and really reach out for help, which is not control, which is, it's kind of like raising a white flag and saying, I'm out of control. I need help. And very few business owners do that. And they pay a huge price. <laughs> that was very well put. And it makes so much sense. I mean, it's literally just fighting gravity to all the things that made you work very well. So one, one couple scenarios that we've got some clients that, and people that I know were like, just a couple, couple different stories and curious on your thoughts on it is one is like, okay, so if the owners, have, if let's say the founders have enough net worth or they don't, they don't need the value from the business to live at all. And they've got a lot, you know, if they've somehow put into some sort of board structure and they've equalized the estate and because right now there's like multiple people call it four or five people all pulling a salary where they enjoy going in and working together and the business is at least cash flowing. And that's aside from the bigger estate. And the reality is, and I don't know, I'm assuming you've seen a lot of this, um, is a lot of the second generation people more on my side of the, the age and your age bracket were there's a lot more of the, the systems. Like this is not an identity. Like let's systematize this. Let's create value. And so there's a lot of these baby boomer businesses that are actually run like crap and they're not actually transferable. So there's not enough value there where if they were to sell it, you know, in any of the, anybody in that kind of category, if they were to sell it after taxes, after all this, you wouldn't have enough of that wealth to make, you know, cause you, you essentially got call it 500 grand of salaries. That's, that's getting, you'd have three kids that would have to go find a job and they wouldn't get enough money to make it worth it. So yeah. does that make sense? Oh, I, I know exactly what you're saying and you're absolutely right. And it was a big problem in a low interest rate environment, right? So you look at a sale and then what are you going to do with that money? What are your returns going to be like mm-hmm. outside of the family business with your investments? Yeah, you're not going to replace that income. That's just about the worst reason to keep a business going. I mean, what I'm really talking about is, I mean, every single business on the planet has a freshness date. It's got a mm-hmm. life cycle. Every mm-hmm. single business on this planet has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And no one wants to talk about the middle. No one, re- and they especially don't want to talk about the end. Business owners are wildly optimistic about how long their business will last. And they're usually out by decades. Of the 100 largest firms in America in the year 1900, only 16 were in business in the year 2000. That's mm-hmm. not a random list of 100 firms. That was America's largest firms. The ones that had the healthiest balance sheets, the biggest sales, the best margin, the best people. They were monopolies and oligopolies. They were price setters. They had brands and people, talent from Harvard and Yale, and only 16 were standing. Now, take a random 100. Even fewer are going to survive. Business owners can't see past one generation. Mm -hmm. So much of, and coming back to your comment about narcissism, so many business owners think that their businesses are legacy. And a lot of them are they're a little cute by half. They really think that, you know, I don't know, the family will figure it out 
or they have no plan and they know the family won't figure it out. This is really nefarious, but there is, I call them my 1%. It's that business owner who, and there's only one out of a hundred that, that thinks this way, but they're there and there's still lots of them. They think that because there's no plan, they know that when they die or become incapacitated, the business will fail. When they're gone, people will gather around at their funeral and say, holy smokes, Bill was such a fantastic business owner. He died and so did the business. I mean, he was so good, he was the only guy that could run it. <laughs> That's the logic. It's insane. What, what Bill doesn't understand is that most people are going to stand around and go, Bill was a little bit of an ass. It was all about Bill. <laughs> right. It was all just about Bill. Bill didn't build systems. Bill didn't have recurring revenue. Bill didn't even play a lot of golf. He couldn't even get to the golf course because you know what? He was, the business was so dependent on Bill. Woohoo! Good for you, right? <laughs> yeah, Bill, Bill's not that bright. In fact, if Bill even has that moment where he decides he's going to sell the business, an M&A guy is going to take him out to dinner. He's going to say, you know what, Bill? I don't want to talk about business tonight. Let's just get to know each other. You know, let's not talk about numbers or how much we're going to pay for your business. We don't want to talk about business at all. We just want to know about Bill. Tell me, Bill, what are you into? Bill goes, well, I like playing golf. That's all. I like playing. I like playing golf too, Bill. Tell me, how many rounds do you play? And Bill goes, well, I only get out four or five times a year, play a couple of industry events. That's about it. Bill does not realize that he just devalued his business. Bill has no idea how he just got game. Bill, the right answer for Bill is, well, that's a great question. I love golf and I play 86 rounds a year. My, the, my people hardly ever know I'm gone. I mean, I'm just, I'm irrelevant. I mean, I don't have customer relationships. I got, a, I, got a, I got someone who runs my sales department. I got a fantastic operations person. I got great systems and processes. So Bill has just hung himself with his own words. Bill's not that bright. Mm -hmm. so, yeah, I totally agree. And I think there's a, there's a lot of the, you, the less ego you have and the more you actually realize that this is an investment and I want to make this valuable and I don't want to work that hard. I mean, I think inherent laziness is a good thing because you're going to figure out all the ways to never have to do something twice and you're going to make <laughs> systems and you're not going to have to work. And so let's go back to then your, your situation, even kind of this, these couple clients that are in these family businesses that I know that, you know, okay. So the, let's say the company is worth 5 million bucks. You know, you're talking mid market, small, more, more mainstream. So maybe a million dollars in EBITDA, 5 million bucks, you know, but you, you pay down taxes, you do all this stuff and there's no chance you can get 500 grand and you can't, I mean like the, literally the kids will have to go get jobs. So there's a couple different scenarios I see there. One is that the kids get re get rewarded for increasing the value of that business over a period of time to actually all move in line to sell together. So that way they make some proceeds or they're able to reinvest. You know, there's got to be like almost a way to give them their running head start towards whatever venture it is next if there's not enough net worth to provide for the entire family. So how do you reconcile that whole situation? So we're, we're starting to drift into my second book called Willing Wisdom, where I answered a couple of questions, big questions that were really, you know, glaring as a result of the first book. And so I, you know, I'm a big fan of family meetings. And often when second gens hear my message from my first book, which is never gift the business to your children. If they, if they want it, they need to buy it. Well, you can imagine if you're a second gender, you're like, oh, I mean, who is this idiot? I, mean, I, don't, like, I don't like that. I don't like that message. I like the uh, you know, just kind of hang around here and wait for my parents to die and get it for free. I like, I, I like that message. Well, <laughs> if they really think that message through, they're going to be waiting a long time. What I'm saying is to the second gens, I'm not trying to deny you a business. I'm a big fan of business founders transitioning wealth while they're alive, cash while they're alive, Mm -hmm. In the context of a family meeting, if you sat down two kids, one in the business, one outside the business, and said, hey, um, hey, Mary and Billy, your mother and I have some surplus capital. We want to start transitioning our wealth now so we can enjoy watching you improve your lives, start businesses, or even transition our business. So your mother and I have $10,000 we'd like to give you each. And that could be 1000 It could be 100000 It could be $3 million. The amount is irrelevant. But watch this exercise. 
So we'd like Mary and Billy to give you each $10,000 each. And by the way, Mary and Billy, our business is for sale. Mm -hmm. Now, do you want to take the $10,000 and return it back to us in exchange for $10,000 worth of stock? Or do you want to take the $10,000 and go buy a car, go buy whatever, go on a vacation or make an investment, whatever you want. You can do anything you want. Ryan, my message is follow the money. It doesn't lie. If those kids love that business and love and believe in their own talents to take that money and grow that business, they're going to return that $10,000 in exchange for shares. If they don't, that's a valuable information. Well, I think that's, yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And that, that clears up because like, you know, some of the structures that we put together is, you know, it's cash bonuses through the, you know, the, the gifting. And then there's also, if you actually tie like a compensation plan to EBITDA or value creation or some sort of KPIs, then they can get cash bonuses. Then you discount the business and then they can use that to buy in. But like you said, if you give them the option, then they will go buy a car. You just know where their, where their priorities lie. So then one of those things then, Tom, would you say, okay, well, then we've got a timeline of like a certain valuation that we want to march towards. So that way there's enough time for juniors or whoever they are to get in and get the, the financial reward that they have. Like, how do you, how do you start lining up? It took you guys five years. What were some of the, the questions and the conversations that you have to determine the buyers and the values that everybody was marching towards? Yeah, so all of those values and timing and value, it's all really being driven by the questions. So, and, and let me just, let me just, for the record, these, these are not my questions. These are questions that my father asked me. I have shamelessly monetized his intellectual property. <laughs> Has he got royalties on it? <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> well done. <laughs> well not for family. We're consistent. <laughs> But yeah, no, seriously, he would ask these questions. And I knew like when I was joining, I knew that I could join as president and CEO of that business. I knew that business could be sold six months later. If someone came along and offered uh, an outrageous multiple, just because I was family and I just joined the business, it, that, that a, never took the business off the market. It was always for sale, always to the highest buyer. Really, the only latitude that we extended to family was last look at the deal. That's it. So then how did you, with those, with those conversations, everything like that, did you guys like have the waterfall effect of understanding how inheritance works, how there was like, and how did you guys separate estate? I mean, did you guys equal the estate? Like what's your kind of thoughts and opinions on how to deal with all that? Oh yeah. So, so part of our family culture is while it's really disciplined and on the surface looks like it's really hard on next gens, it's actually really transparent. So I, I mean, I have a copy of my parents' will. They have a copy of my will. Uh, we have two kids, 22, 25. When our kids turn 18, we buy them wills. I mean, they're very disappointed. They're hoping for cars to get wills. Like we just, we are just, we button down our governance mm-hmm. and we share our documents. So and I can tell you, my brother was one of my biggest supporters. He was outside the business. He's older. But because we have family meetings and we were disclosing the fact that I was purchasing the family business at market value and I was, I mean, let's follow the money. I go to the bank, borrow the money, buy the shares buying my parents' shares. The money's sitting up at the estate level. We have a copy of my parents' will. We can see we're equal beneficiaries Mm -hmm. of the estate. So as I'm running and growing the business and buying it at market value, what's my brother saying? Thank you. (laughs) Go, Tom, go. Exactly. (laughs) Right, right. Rivalry in family businesses. I'll tell you why, why it happens. It's because the notion of gifting a family business is allowed to percolate inside the family as, as part of its culture. It's never addressed. So people are left to make assumptions and the kids outside the business look at the kids in the business and they go, well, that's where all the family dough is. They're going to get more and they're going to get it sooner. That, so and that may be yeah. the furthest idea away from the founder or the, or the parents. Mm-hmm. That is, my favorite line in the book is this. Silence is the great destroyer of family business wealth. It's not families that talk about their plans. It's families that leave people guessing yep. because of the secrecy around the transition of family wealth. It's, it's interesting. Um, who did I hear recently where they said, Tom, um, when you have silence or unaddressed things, because, you know, people deal with this way as they're like, you know, marching towards an exit or, I mean, all, pretty much all of life it applies. And when there is no answers and no 
when there's a void, people make their own shit up. And what happens is, is it's usually 10 times worse than the actual truth. <laughs> You're absolutely right. When, especially when it comes to this subject matter. So then what would you say to, you know, the creative estate and tax planners and all those people out there were, you know, okay, if, if Tom's going to the bank, getting fair market, you then pay your, your parents, then there's ordinary income, there's cap gains, there's, you know, you're, you're getting, there's double taxation, all that stuff. How do you, how does that reconcile with, with wealth, wealth preservation and the estate? The most clever tax maneuver in the world is not smart enough to diminish the risk of transitioning a business into the hands of someone who doesn't want to risk capital mm. or is not capable of running or growing that business. You can save all the tax in the world, but if you thrust a business into the hands of the wrong person, you are going to destroy everything. And that tax gain is going to look like the right. dumbest thing you ever did. It's the tax tail wagging the dog over and over and over. Mm -hmm. I keep telling business owners, suck it up, pay your tax, make really informed decisions around your largest asset, and that's your business. You know, and let me just share with you a very, very brief story. I was playing golf recently with a, a CEO of a search firm, executive search firm, and I asked him, how do you find a CEO for a company? You know what he does? He starts with a database of a couple of thousand resumes. They whittle that down to 100. Then they start telephone interviews, whittle that down to 10 candidates, face-to-face -face interviews. They put a team of three search executives on that file, multiple face-to-face -face interviews, and then they hire a CEO, starting from a pool of 2,000 to find the best talent. Now, you tell me what the likelihood, the probability of finding the best CEO from a pool of two kids. <laughs> I saw where that was going. Yeah. That's why only 3% of family businesses make it to the third generation. Right. <laughs> right. Because we're saving tax, but thrusting business into the hands of the wrong people. They don't work. I, I mean, well. Starting, starting to see why I'm not a family business consultant? <laughs> who, who would hire me? Yeah, right. But it, I mean, it is so, it, it's so funny because it makes so much logical sense, Tom. We're like, it's, it's, I, I can't, who I was talking to my dad about it recently. Um, and we were talking about like the, uh, the Royal family over <laughs> and you're just like, what are the chances that the kid is capable of running the entire country? Like that it's such a ridiculous concept that it's, it, 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 it is. It's, and it's by the, it's the very, it's a micro version of the same thing. Right. Exactly. It's so, no <laughs> so what's, what's the premise of your second book then? The premise of the second book is uh, it's really, so it really presumes that a business has been sold. There's been a liquidity event and mm -hmm. I, and I'll make the point. And I, I was staggered by this to learn that many business owners will not sell their 10 million, 20 million, 30 million, or $500 million business because they don't want to deal with the issue of how to do, how to leave and transition cash. And in other words, so there's a lot of business owners who feel more comfortable leaving an operating business to their children where they feel like they'll have a, an obligation or a duty to get up in the morning and go somewhere and do something. So this idea of just having a liquidity event and then leaving cash is really, uh, it's really difficult for founders who never had that scenario presented to themselves. So that's why a lot of business owners do what they do. They don't sell. They just die at their desk and then transition operating businesses. <laughs> so I wrote a book that basically said, look, you, you got to have a transition. You got to sell your business to someone, sell it inside the family, sell it outside the family. I don't care, but always sell your business. That's, you know, your last deal is your hardest deal, but it must be done. That's the greatest gift you can give your family is that, that clarity and that simplicity. But then I really did have to answer the question, how do families talk about the division of wealth? When do you leave wealth to your children? How much is enough? How much is too much? And willing wisdom really gets into that subject matter. And, and again, I offer this time seven questions, not 12. Someone has said, if I write a third book, maybe I'll offer some answers, but, but more questions <laughs> in the second book. But these, are, again, are beautiful questions to start family conversations around the importance of wills, the importance of powers of attorney, healthcare directives. Ryan, do you know that 125 million American adults, including half the adults listening to this, to this, this show, don't have a will? They're missing the most basic document. 
If you're a business owner and you don't have a will, do you know that when you die, your business will get chopped up according to the, the state law that you're in, you know, Iowa, mm -hmm. Wisconsin, your business is going to get chopped up along with your barbecue and your canoe. It's going to get divided according to that really rigid formula. What is going on? It's ridiculous, isn't it? It's insane. <laughs> it's insane because, because you, you can't talk about death. You can't talk about aging. If you do, studies show that if you have a will and you talk about it, you will die immediately. <laughs> I, just, I, I just made that up. That is <laughs> that was great. No, right. Yeah, if you talk about yeah, no, <laughs> it will come to fruition. <laughs> so, how? So, in the, I, I, I know because we got uh, um, a short amount of time here. I want to circle back, Tom, to your your definition and your experience of family meetings, because I think, you know, if we were to sum it all up, you know, it ha talk, 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 and start understanding and having clarity. So what, what would you suggest are the baby steps? The, the, what would these family meetings look like and how do people have it? And by the way, even before you answer that, I got like this one friend who's got a family business that all he's doing is putting his head down is working his ass off and squirreling away money because his whole family and his sisters and everybody are like on the, the, the cow taking the milk and he's like the, he's the Sherpa and there's no one's talking about it. So what do these families meetings, what do these family meetings look like? Who should be there and how do you like, what, what's the format? Well, I can tell you at a recent, I'm, I'm often a speaking resource inside family meetings. I come in, I speak for a couple of hours and then I, I get the hell out of Dodge. All <laughs> breaks loose. Uh, so Really, I'm a provocateur. I come in, but I, I'll tell you what I've seen in some of these family meetings. There aren't two that are, are uh, similar. They're all different. But at a recent one in Chicago, I can tell you that um, I, I watched a 15-year-old girl chair a meeting. She ran the family meeting. They rotate the chair. Now, this family is extraordinary. They have invested serious amount of time to prepare the next generation to be inheritors of significant wealth. But they are not, they're not burying their heads in the sand. They're, they're attacking this issue, uh, you know, full on and resourcing it with, you know, with education and books and speakers. I mean, the next gen are so impressive. We, awesome. we often get the next generation that we fear, not the ones that we want, but the ones that we fear because we don't engage. And if mm -hmm. there are concerns around the talent in the next generation or if there's addiction issues or some other major concern, they don't go away on their own. The, 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 there's just more zeros. You're just doubling down by ignoring it longer. Mm -hmm. So every family meeting is different, but some of the common features, they're almost always resourced. So there is a trusted advisor, a facilitator who's running the meeting. There's an agenda. There is, there is someone taking minutes. The agendas are actually very short and very you know, concise and precise. They tackle one or two issues a family meeting. I, I'm seeing a lot of a lot more transparency. Families working on you know wills, sharing wills, making sure that everyone has a clear idea of how things are going to go down. There is just so much family litigation right now. The courts in virtually every state are just jam packed full of families fighting. There's never been so much money. Two billion dollars will be inherited today in the U.S. Today, tomorrow, and every day for the next 10 years. It is a tsunami of money. Much of that money sitting in as equity in operating businesses. Without a will. No will. Like just a freak show. Free for all. Everyone lawyering up and grinding down these beautiful, beautiful, beautiful businesses. Because no one knew how to have a family meeting and start the conversation around logical, transparent transitions. It... it communication, right? <laughs> Just talk. Yeah. Start yeah, communi communication and relinquishing control. Watching that next generation not run that family meeting like a board meeting where they sit at the head of the boardroom table and say, okay, I'm going to ask you some questions about, you know, about our business and whoever gives me the best answer is going to get the most money. Right. Like the opposite of that. Mm -hmm. The business founder, the controlling, you know, the matriarch or patriarch, making themselves very tiny in those processes, letting the next generation, you know, grow up and find their own voice and, and give them the confidence and the space to be not just as good, but to be, to be better mm -hmm. in 
not, not a business founder who uses a family meeting to suck all the oxygen out of the room and, you know, perpetuate their own mythology about how fricking fantastic they are. The opposite. Mm-hmm. And those are amazing to watch. And sadly, those great family meetings go underreported. No one's going to write an article about a great family that meets four times a year with their advisors and have this incredibly articulate, well thought out, well communicated plan. Who wants to read about that? That just sounds like they're boasting. Right. right? What do we want to read about? We're going to read about another, you know, Aretha Franklin without a will. We're going to read about Prince without a will. We're going to read about celebrities without wills and fighting and litigation. And we think, well, that's, you know, that's the trajectory that families are on. Make it, hold it, blow it, shirt sleeve to shirt sleeves, rice paddy to rice paddy. Wherever I travel, 25 countries I've spoken in, there's a version of that narrative. Make What's it. What's your favorite one? I think it's clogs to clogs. I speak <laughs> in South Africa, the Dutch influence. Yeah, you, you start out as a peasant. You build a business, you create value, you're no longer working in the, you know, in the, in the fields. Next generation, you know, three generations, you're wearing clogs again. You know, what's really interesting, and, um, and we don't have enough time for us to really dive into this, but I interviewed this gentleman named uh, Daniel Goldstein, from, and he is running a 134-year-old ESOP. It started out as a family business, but they, they did three tranches of an ESOP, and they're very large, and they've been buying businesses. But he, he actually even broke it down. He said, like physically, as that business continues to grow at whatever normal growth rate, and as every generation multiplies, it's not big enough to sustain everybody. So you're naturally, just by pure math, going to run into the clogs to clogs in three generations because there's not enough liquidity and like there's not a market for it. So you just physically can't necessarily do it unless it's just one child after one child, and that's yeah. it. And, and, and not only that, but if all you do is, if, you know, don't, you know, sh- just gift an equal number of shares to your progeny and they have progeny and they have progeny. It only takes three generations to get up to 60 shareholders, ex-wives, everyone with an equal amount of shares and no definitive definitive control. Right. We've we've addressed control. Businesses love control. That's how they make money. Someone in control. You can see, you can see the paradox, right? Yep. Family businesses out-earn non-family businesses, and yet they, they don't last as long as non-family businesses. It's like, and I'm fascinated by that inflection point and when this awesome money-making machine actually turns on itself and becomes a wealth-destroying machine. It's, and it's different for every family. Mm-hmm. So we got to wrap up here because you got to go. Um, what is the, you know, if, because we've talked about a lot, you've got, thousands of uh, presentations you've done over the last decade of listening or listening to all the people that have read your book. If there's one thing that we've talked about that you want to highlight, or if there's one thing that we've missed and there's a big takeaway for the listeners, what would it be? The greatest gift any business owner can give their, their children is the freedom and the flexibility and the resources to grow up and be the people they were meant to be, to be authentic and not some version of the business owner themselves. The greatest gift is freedom. We know that living in democratic countries, we know that freedom is so valued, so cherished. And we forget that concept and that principle when it comes to our businesses. So if the listeners want to get more of your information, the book, all that you get blogs, all the stuff on, what's the best way to get in touch with you? Best way is, uh, is just the title of the book, everyfamiliesbusiness.com. You can find the book. The fastest way to order it is right off the website. Shipping is free. And if people send me a nice email, we'll even throw in some steak knives. Ooh, cucko. We don't, mess, we don't mess around here at Deacon. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm self-published, so the books, no, the books, um, the books come right away, and uh, and I guarantee it's an entertaining read. I also do a, nar- I also do an audio book, and I narrate that audio book, and it's, it's pretty good. It's actually good. hilarious. Yep, yep, I enjoyed it. <laughs> I love it. Well, thanks so much for coming on. All right, Ray. Thanks, uh, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. I'm sure there was a little bit of controversy and uh, some inner conflict going on if you're in a family business and listening to Tom's opinions. But I think if there's a one main takeaway is sit down with your family members and have a conversation. Get a facilitator and start talking about the things that actually matter within your family, the money, the business, the estate, the relationships, the work, who's going to buy it. Have those questions because this needs to be answered because dying in the corner office and leaving 
leaving everybody with a big pile of mess is not what you want to be known for. So I really, really challenge you to sit down and have these conversations. If you want more information, go onto our website, start leveling up your education on how a business is valued, all your different exit options. So you're not just having these conversations in the dark. We're providing as many resources as you possibly can to give yourself some freedom to have these conversations and know that you're just not flying in the dark or relying on advisors that are potentially in it for some gain that you don't know. Let everybody in your family read Tom's book and, and start the dialogue. So if you enjoyed this episode, go on to iTunes, give me a rating, share it with anybody that's got a family business, and I will see you next week.